0: In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla government solutions and staff can help. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. I'm just amazed, like, you know,
1: how, like, you know, analytic our CAA soldiers have become. And it used to be oneses and twos across the force, but now this skill set has been so professionalized, it's almost uniform across the C A ranks and files at this point. That is a great fit. Welcome to the 1CA podcast by the Solar Players
2: Association. I'm your host for today's episode, Arnel DeVitt, and we are excited to have with us Mr. Duan Lee from Zignal Labs. Uh, Duan is no stranger to our community. He has had National Science Foundation awards to develop computational network models of economic, political dynamics, and emergence. He has served with the McChrystal Group, taught at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, which he has led lots of research there, as well as taught many of our military officers, and he's now at Zignal Labs. So, Mr. Duan Lee, welcome, sir. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You know, always um, a big fan and supporter of civil affairs. So this is really my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Well, we begin with um, Zignalab, sir. So what, what is it that uh, Zignalab is about and what you're doing there? You can you tell Yeah, listeners.
1: I think that's a good place to start. So Lab is the world's leading impact intelligence energy company. So we offer a SaaS platform. And I can give you like you know, three true statements about uh, Zignal Labs. One is that we ingest the most diverse uh, media, uh, digital medium uh, data sources. And number two, uh, we enrich all these unstructured data points through our you know, pipeline. And then we enrich them so they can be queryable and analyzable. And number three, we put all these different uh, enriched data sources onto the same analytic platform where people can really compare how conversations are shaped on different media platforms so they can see how information propagates over time and space, which also includes misinformation and disinformation. For example, we are ingesting about 10 million mentions online about the coronavirus. And of course, this is how I can detect and analyze a lot of this information about the pandemic uh, stemming from the CCP, the Kremlin, the RGC, and the likes, right? And uh, some of our use cases, especially for the US you know, federal government and DOD uh, include uh, force protection, threat detection, narrative analysis, um, situational awareness, Uh, And then like most importantly, understanding how state-sponsored narratives travel and propagate through different media platforms, sometimes coming all the way to our shores to affect our organic discourse, as well as political process. So that's what our company is really known for, and uh, we have a large number of federal government um, end users, Um, SOCOM is one of them, uh, the Secret Service and and the like. So we work very closely with the federal government in order to protect the integrity of our information environment. And in terms of what I do at Signal Labs, I'm in charge of research and strategy. Uh, Just to unpack that position, what I do is threefold. First, um, I work closely with uh, US government stakeholders to think about you know, how to like you know, think about information statecraft, right? Uh, so I work very closely with policy principles and government stakeholders to really think about what it means to you know, execute the national security strategy in the information uh, environment. Number two, I work very closely with uh, research and development agencies uh, to continue to pioneer what kind of solutions we need to compete well against our peer adversaries uh, in the information space. So I work very closely with the national labs in terms of data um, integration and data visualizations, right? And number three is something that I care deeply about and that is content development. I work very closely with SOCOM entities and DOD entities to produce cutting-edge analytic reports on how our peer adversaries use information, misinformation, and disinformation as part of their revisionist efforts. So that's what I do at Signal Labs. Wow, that is incredible.
2: So is it? So you said a lot. They you service the you know the federal government a lot, but I also noticed on the website, you guys have a lot of uh, private companies, commercial industry types that you you service as well, right? Is is there there balance? Is it mostly government or mostly private?
1: Oh, I think right now probably is 50-50. Because I think some of the solutions are very comparable. So if you think about like, you know, uh, risk intelligence. So a lot of our federal government agencies use our technology for executive protection. But, you know, our Fortune 500 executives, you know, face similar risk factors. So there is a lot of overlapping solutions. So, yes, we have quite a few Fortune 500, you know, customers as well. And they use our platform to shape their proactive messaging. So in terms of their PR, campaign management and things like that. So I would say it's a really healthy 50-50 balance at this point.
2: Okay. Yeah, I saw on, on LinkedIn your, your recent interview on uh, battling against malign influence. And uh, you mentioned that we need strategic integration on technology, uh, research, and development and procurement, which I would like to hear that we need presidential leadership at, and, and the National Security Council focus on these challenges. Can you expand on this? Like in, yeah. Uh, I think those are some good ideas. And there's a lot of big things there that
1: we need to tackle. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. And clearly, this is something that I deeply care about. I like to like you know, learn from our adversaries from time to time. I think this is what H.R. McMaster called strate- strategic empathy. And in this case, uh, like the that. Chinese yeah. Communist Party has a really good example. And that is they run the Science and Technology Commission under the Central Military Committee. And it sounds militaristic, but essentially the Central Military Committee is their version of our National Security Council. So what they do is running this advisory council on a yearly basis that includes government officials, technologists, as well as private sector and industry stakeholders. So essentially, it works as a strategic hub of integrating technology with Essentially foreign policy objectives. And to me, like you know, you know dictators will always have an upper hand when it comes to integrating technology with strategy. That's not what I'm suggesting, but what I'm suggesting here is that you know we have very a lot of domain specific like innovation boards, right? So a lot of people in this like an environment are familiar with. The Defense Innovation Board, DARPA, IARPA, and there's a whole slew of this organization. Uh, DIU belongs to the Defense Innovation Board. Uh, The National Security Innovation Network also belongs to the Defense Innovation Board. And we have, you know, AHAP works, you know, SoftWorks, the whole like, you know, nine yards. The problem is that they focus too much on technology harvesting as opposed to what I call techno-strategic integration. So we have a lot of bespoke organizations that are busy procuring the cutting edge technology, but there is no strategic oversight dictating which strategic requirements really should prioritize which types of technology and so on and so forth. So to me, this function really belongs to the National Security Council because I think Right now, our sort of, you know, defense innovation board entities are too domain specific. And that yeah. is, at least in DOD, we talk about multi-domain operations. So this has been going on for a while. So we're trying to collect different domains to have the best war fighting capability. But that notion has not spilled over to how to integrate the best technological solutions yet. So I think, you know, that conversation has to take place right now.
2: I guess that's a challenge with democracies and, and our bureaucracies. Is we have so, it's, it's a challenge to cohere all that. So you see it being at the National Security Council level, forcing that, being the forcing function to for that integration.
1: It's yes, right I do. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll just, you know, share some nuggets. Uh, sure. On one hand, you know, It is no secret that we have a new senior directorate in the National Security Council. I'm not going to name what it is uh, in this open channel, but we do have a new senior directorate in the National Security Council responsible for this kind of integrative approach, right? So that's great news. We actually better at this than autocratic and authoritarian regimes, at least in my assessment. Because once we set these institutions, this integrative whole of society institutions, I think we are much better at managing this institution to serve public good as opposed to individual dictators' needs and like you whims know, and so on and so forth. I, I know there is this big conversation that perhaps democracies are always disadvantageous to dictatorships when it comes to using the best technologies to advance foreign policy objectives. I, I tend to think that's not entirely true, historically speaking. You know, If you look at the origin of DARPA, if you look at the Manhattan Project, if you look at the origin of IRPA, once yeah. we set up these institutions, I think we can go much faster than our revisionist adversaries.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. Um... Yeah, That's a good insight. I mean, you can't force, you know, it's hard to force creativity and innovation and collaboration The things that would come about by with the dictatorship and, and, and trying to drive it and force it. So I think you're right. And I guess that leads to the, so at the national, we were talking at the national strategic level. Let's go back down to the Department of Defense level. And it seems like we have a, a challenge with, and especially in the civil affairs community, we're, we're starting to see now that we need to be more uh, a part of, and integrate better with our information related capabilities, you know, our activities the things that we're doing, you know, they all, everything matters. And it's about for hearing that in, in the United States, I think some of our other Western countries are starting to have a challenge where, you know, what does this information domain mean? Who owns it? Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you have army cyber command now saying that they're gonna be the information warfare command. You have the state department has their global engagement center. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course you've worked with all these commands to include SOCOM and well, how do we go forward optimally with these information and influence capabilities? Who should own and cohere them? expect your opinion on this? Because you, you've kind of mixed in all these different uh,
1: yeah. worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know, um, you know, I, I think that's a really good question. You know, we can talk about the Cyberspace Laureum Commission or the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, and even within DOD, we have the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. So. At the like, you know, strategic level, we are setting up these like, you know, important hubs and shops to strategize how to use information related capabilities in support of the national security strategy. And I think that process is slowly, slowly trickling down. It's taken some time, but I'm really encouraged to see this new senior directorate in the National Security Council that's gonna have a very broad mandate to essentially uh, align different like capabilities to fight well for information statecraft. So that piece is coming together, I'm I'm comfortable with that. So let me move down to the operational level a little bit. Even though people may feel a little bit frustrated in terms of how we employ information operations related capabilities, I feel like we're doing better than most people realize because Again, uh, like you know, between like you know, two thousand and fifteen and you know, eighteen, you know, we were able to experiment with several models against the Islamic State uh, that combine both cyber and OSINT elements. So those who are in the know should know what I'm talking about. And this was a really, you know, one of the best kept secrets in our arsenal. And, and that is West Nature brought in like you know, cyber experts, you know, OSINT experts, you know, and, and 2X experts, you know, just regular 2X experts, you know, 3, 3X. And then we create this like really like, you know, agile organization. And, and, and it was essentially meant by like you know, a couple of generals, right? And it was a real like, you know, thing that was doing real damage to the Islamic State. So this is still in our muscle memory. And I think for those who are following this conversation, you know, should know that now we are sort of broadening this concept and we call it the IWTF construct, and that is information warfare task force. And of yeah. course, you know, if you look at our US code, this is not very hard to do for DOD, especially in you know, you know, a declared theater of conflict, you know, we own this space. So that is not something that's surprising, but I can tell you with confidence that now we are expanding this IWTF construct to audit tech environments as well. So this is why I say we're not doing too bad. You know, actually we're that's doing good. okay, right? <laughs> so yeah. if you think about how we are setting up, like you know, task forces in an audit tech environment to go after great power competition. So we've been making some progress in this regard. I think what we need to do is meeting in the middle. So at the strategic level, there's some policy decisions that are trickling down. At the operational level, we've been setting up new organizational structures to go after information statecraft. But there is a gap between strategic and operational levels. I think that's the scene that we need to codify. And then I think we'll be fine. I'm actually very optimistic. I mean, it is not as fast as it could be, but this is a liberal democracy. Nothing is supposed yeah. to be as fast as authoritarian regimes, but all things considered, I think we're doing pretty okay. We're doing okay.
2: That's good to hear. I'm glad you hear the optimistic view. Um, and the British here who I work with, they're, they're those two task forces. I mean, they, they call them information maneuver groups. And so I think that similarity there so yeah,
1: and I give you another like another like you know uh like you know a data point that should like you know uplift a lot of us in this you know community and that is you know I I I talked to you know Dan Kimmich at the Global Engagement Center from time to time. You know, people may have some like you know frustrations with a GEC, but it's it's a new entity. And I think they're doing okay. And I think you know they're trying to like you know go as forward as they can. So we're essentially building a lot of you know, liaison elements uh, for information statecraft. You know, compared to five years ago, this is an entirely different IA, you know, interagency environment. And I think we're doing okay. I think we're doing better. We, we, we are not as good as we could be, but compared <laughs> to five years ago, I think you know, we've come a long way.
2: This is, sessions would be like a therapy session for us all that are, it's uh, <laughs> good to help hear all this good stuff. Okay, so I follow a lot of your work for quite some time, Duan, when you were teaching at the Naval Postgraduate School, you know, I was always curious about the social network analysis or analytics that you've done there. You know, what are, the, what are some of the, if you can just quickly go over some of those projects that you're most proud of that you worked on there, the research, because I know you were there for quite some time in helping uh, special yeah. operations in the combatant uh, commands.
1: Yeah. So like, you know, you know, no kidding. Like, you know, I don't know whether you remember, you know, Colonel Peter, you know, Schmidt. And Yeah, yeah. I remember. I knew him. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah. And he's at Indiana University right now. But, you know, I work closely with him. And also, like, you know, you know, I work very closely with a lot of you amazing CIA officers. And in fact, some of my best projects involve, like, you know, CIA soldiers. So I'll give you two sort of you know um, projects that I would call Fundly uh, every time I get a chance. And I think, you know, first one is essentially using a lot of, of open source data and social media data to you know, map and illuminate uh, CCP-affiliated and Kremlin-affiliated you know, assets and networks in the Baltics and in contested areas in East Asia, such as, like, you know, Mongolia, Taiwan, the Korean Peninsula, right? And to me, this really, you know, captures the essence of global, uh, I mean, great power competition. It's not about having an end state, but constantly occupying, like, you know, more space in a contested area, whether there's the human domain, the physical domain, information domain, it's really about, whether you have a better position on those domains compared to uh, our peer adversaries, so I work with a lot of CIMIC teams as well as cyber teams uh, to essentially, like you know, illuminate pro CCP and pro Kremlin, like you know, local auxiliary and uh, you know uh, networks, uh, especially like media outlets, media like you know personalities, they were essentially propagating pro. You know, CCP and pro-Kremlin conversations online and also in the physical domain as well. So that was something that I was really proud of. And uh, the second project is essentially using this analytic, you know, result to show our allies and our partner nations, nations the extent of revisionist stress threats they were facing. So, you know, I work very closely with Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Mongolia, Taiwan, and, uh, you know, let's just say the Korean Peninsula. One of the things that I'm really proud of is that we were able to use this analytic products to convince them that they had to update their national defense strategies and plans to address like, you know, steady-state revisionist, you know, threats. I'm very proud of, like, you know, working especially with uh, SACPAC uh, and SACURE, And, like, you know, I'll I'll give you another example uh, from SACPAC. So I work very closely with our embassy in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, work with their um, uh, general staff. We essentially gave them a series of workshops on threats coming from the PRC. Essentially, we're able to convince them to rewrite the national defense strategy, which we did, and uh, I was that's huge. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. And and they essentially completely revamped the national defense strategy <laughs> to focus on the PRC, and we presented these results and additional you know analytic uh, projects to their national security council in the presidential um, <laughs> you know, palace in in Ulaanbaatar, oh. and I brought like you know us uh, soft officers with me and other subject matter experts with me and there were like you know one ca officer one you know io officer uh one and a couple of like you know uh, special forces officers and we presented this case to their national security council staff you know six months later that their president essentially approved the revised national security strategy that's
2: amazing
1: and we would essentially improve our strategic Interoperability with the Mongolian governments. Yeah, so I think that's <laughs> something that I find incredibly, like you know, rewarding. And yeah, that's, that's, that's on it.
2: your bio there. You need to put that. You know, rewriting other countries' uh, strategy,
1: national defense. No, but, but that, that's something that, like you know, I share only with sort of you know, um, you know, my like you know, military friends. Sure. Um, because I don't want to get hacked by Chinese. Um, <laughs> by don't master. be a target. When yeah. you're in Mongolia, um,
2: did you go flying? A, I know a lot of the guy, our guys when they go over there, they they get a lot of good cool photos flying eagles or hawk. Did
1: you get yeah, to do that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's <laughs> that, that's you know, uh, I was severely abused by the soft team, uh, in Ulaanbaatar, <laughs> so I didn't get to see a lot of the countryside. Um, oh
2: no, okay, yeah,
1: yeah, but 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 I think you know uh, what I find most like you know rewarding is that. From RSOF 2022, um, I was just talking to General Cleveland and uh, we really emphasize these notions of resistance and resilience, especially not for us, but for our allies and our partner nations. So we were trying to help them to become more resilient, more resistant to the revisionist states like the, the PRC, the Russian Federation and the IRGC, North Korea. It went from a concept to like a series of real like serious strategic engagements where we were able to come up with more interoperability and essentially give them more like, you know, resilience as well as resistance potential. And to me, this is something that we do better than anybody else. Speaking of which, I think that is the space, the space the civil affairs has pioneered and developed better than anybody else in the entire force. So I'm really, really like you know proud of yeah, those kind
2: of projects. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a good point. I mean I think one thing that we do well is we don't we don't we, we take for granted is people like you and other other uh, friends at our network, I know Nick Crowley and, and Dr. Alex Desik, some others that are constantly helping us out or it's just power of uh, these these non-traditional relationships and, and expanding on them in these networks.
0: Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. with Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. So closing out
2: with some final questions, sir. Um, yeah. So you spent a lot of time with the, with the teaching RSOF officers, you know, special forces officers, psychological operations officers at MPS, and, and then you've done work at Bragg and in all those different countries. So where do you see things going? You know, what are the things that we're doing right? How can we improve as a community? Final thoughts.
1: Yeah, so like, you know, there are a couple of things, you know, um, you know what? Let's, let's unpack that question in three sort of new elements, you know, growth, what CA is doing right, And where perhaps CA could improve? I've seen a tremendous amount of growth in the CA community in two areas. Uh, One is professionalization and the other one is strategic realization. So let me start with uh, professionalization. So I've seen the evolution of the CA pipeline uh, in the past perhaps, let's just say like seven, eight years. And I think it all started with General Cleveland trying to articulate special warfare. And, and CA was, you know, first to enter the call. In special warfare, managing relationships is probably the most critical skill set. And I think, you know, we didn't have that um, skill set arsenal before perhaps, you know, 12, you know, 2012. And CA has come a long way. You know teaching is cadre about how to assess the human domain, you know, how to assess a social environment, you know, how to identify you know, key leaders or key stakeholders in a foreign environment, how to approach them, you know, how to run analytics and how to manage those relationships, how to essentially maintain some kind of you know, data-driven, you know, analytics about these engagements and so on and so forth. So perhaps in the past three years, uh, whenever I go overseas to support the real doers. I'm just amazed, like, you know, how, like, you know, analytic our CAA soldiers have become. And it used to be oneses and twos across the force, but now this skill set has been so professionalized, it's almost uniform across the CAA ranks and files at this point. That is a great fit. I mean, it's not perfect, but we've come a long way in terms of being more professionally like CAA proficient. So I think Even the great, NCOs,
2: the NCOs are just. And when people ask me from about our army, now that I've been over here for quite some time, I, I just tell them that you know what makes our army different is are they have professionalism or our non-commissioned officer corps. I mean, our NCOs give us that edge by yes. far, especially in yeah. civil affairs. <laughs> yes, highly. Yeah,
1: you give them um, a few like, you know, programs and then you give them a few like, you know, you know, CSV files and then like, you know, the things <laughs> that come <they promote> up <laughs> <CSU> with. CSV files. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Like, you know, I mean, we've come a long way in terms of like, you know, how professional our like CA like, you know, soldiers have become. I don't think it is being sufficiently appreciated across the board. And number two, strategic realization. And that is, you know, I'm going to talk about this a bit more later on, but Typically, CA teams have a little bit more freedom of movement, especially in overseas environments, and they become so much better at working from the embassy platform and essentially using their equities to gain more access and placement within the embassy platform to go after big uh, objectives and big operations. Of course, well-nested with the rest of the soft team and everybody else. But yeah. I've seen essentially CA becoming a strategic asset in an interagency environment. And this was not the case like five years ago. So this yeah. was a tremendous amount of growth that I've seen in the past like five years. Right now, I think is perhaps also twofold. Um, one, I think CA is doing really well in terms of trying to uh, be nested in the IA environment, so I I think to me CA is the best conduit between like DOD and DOS, so because I think what they do is naturally more strategic than tactical, right, so I think CA is doing right in terms of realizing that, you know, know, interagency nested operations, and what they do really right right now is also being the tip of the spear for 39 efforts. Because to me, you know, 39 efforts really depend on how well you map and illuminate your sort of you know surrounding environment. Yeah. And I think CA does it better than anybody else when it comes to essentially illuminating your cognitive environment to essentially better tailor and calibrate our 39 efforts overseas, right? So this is and
2: 39 meaning the psychological operations efforts.
1: Information operations. Broadly. Information.
2: Oh, generally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yes. So because I think to me, th- those two things are related, but not reducible because to me, yeah. good, you know, information operations require good local mouthpieces, right. And I think CA is better at finding those local influencers better That's than right. anybody else. And w- in what areas do I think that CA can improve? Uh, not a lot, but there are you know, a couple of like, you know, areas. Uh, one is that right now, I think great power competition is really you know, pivoting hard toward open source intelligence. Uh, because I don't think we want to go mano mano with the PRC. I don't think the Kremlin wants to go mano mano with us anywhere in the world, especially you know, during and after this pandemic, right? Mm. So a lot of this great power competition will take place in the information environment, and right now there is just so much data out there. Traditional, like you know, analytics, are not sufficient to take advantage of what people call big data. Up to this point, CA has done a great job in terms of like you know working with social media platforms and like you know doing social network analysis. Great stuff. I think the next step would be data science. I think CA should own data science. So I know CA essentially employs a lot of data scientists to supplement their skill sets. But I think, you know, CA actually should own data science moving forward. And I think it should be part of their pipeline very soon, because without that, we cannot understand what kind of information environment we are in. So I think that's one thing that I want to sort of, harp on. Yeah, I mean, the data scientist, though, that
2: is such a it takes a high degree of training and specialization to to do that properly. And so, you know, if you, I guess, you'd have to have uh, some select senior, you know, non-commissioned officers. And This is where we we're trying to push for warrant officers to do some of this type of type of work. We tried to, move, I know, Tom Detelski and myself and some others have tried to push this in the past, and we were met with some resistance at SWIC. Yeah. Seems like this that might be the niche for uh, for warrant officers to do data science.
1: Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the gray skill program. So we've done it before, you know. We've done it before. So you know, it is you now uh, like training, you know, DNA. We've done it before. We can set aside a few talented people to specialize in this exclusive skill set, and then essentially forward deploy them, and then just you know start running this like you know pipeline on a continuous basis. So we, so I think I don't think it's as onerous as we think it is. If the need is there, we can go after it. One thing, you know, this is a tiny bit of like. That you know the CA can improve, and that it is, I think CA can improve is integrated, you know, con ops, so to speak. And I know you know we we do a much better job at you know training our guys before they deploy on like integrated country strategies and like you know you know interagency like you know etiquette and you know our language, all the good stuff. We we are doing much better in this space than before but I feel like you know, CA is still a little bit shy in terms of pushing its own con because I think there is this still like a you know, small mindset that we're trying to enable and support other main efforts. I think we need to flip that mindset, especially in an OD environment within the context of great power competition. To me, CA is the main effort, right? And, and everything else, right?
2: Yeah. I'm liking everything you're saying.
1: <laughs> well, I'm serious. I'm serious. Great. Because when you're not fighting, when you're not fighting, right? What is the main tool? It's engagement, right? And, you know, yeah. essentially having more friendly networks and individuals in a given location than our peer adversaries. This is the main frontline of great power competition. And CA has been a bit shy to essentially push its own, like, you know, integrated concepts thinking that their current kind of are supportive of something other, right? We need to flip that mindset because great power competition requires that engagement is the primary front line, everything else. So we may do ops, we may drop bombs, we may do JSET, but we do all of those things to support strategic engagement so we can have a bigger slice of that high compared to our peer competitors. So I think that is a tiny bit of improvement, Chris, I want to see from, from the I city. love it. No, I,
2: I, and like we had talked about before and what the work we've done with General Cleveland on trying to build a theoretical framework for special warfare, I think that work needs to continue and we need to crack it open and, and cohere this framework better with not just civil affairs but the information-related capabilities and cyber and how, would you, how do you bring all these effects together to bear on, on our problems, especially in this, this space between peace and war, this gray zone, or whatever you wanna call it, so. Yeah. We got a reading list that we're pushing out here soon. Yeah. What are some thought leaders and books that uh, you're reading yeah. right now that our community yeah,
1: read? Yeah, so like, you know, I, I thought about this really hard and I wanna be really concise. So no, like, no, you know, you. Um, let me, let's do it this way. Uh, who are the leaders that I follow? So when it comes to leaders, when it comes to the CCP, I follow HR uh, McMaster. Uh, he one. has yeah. been the X-Men when it comes to great power competition. <laughs> so, yes, everybody okay. should follow like, you know, HR McMaster yeah. when it comes to great power competition. When it comes to emerging technology, I follow uh, P.W. Singer, the P. Sims, guy who yeah. just did a webinar with me. Uh, uh, and then like, you know, when it comes to China, uh, I recommend, you know, Mike, Pillsbury 100th year marathon. I think he's a great guy to, to follow. When it comes to organizational agility, I strongly recommend that we you guys follow Christopher Fussell at McCrissa Group and Standing in Crystal. And they've been really active in helping large organizations cope with the pandemic. So they've been very active. So there's a lot to learn from and um i wanna like you know recommend a few books uh you know before we we call it done uh sure. so when it comes to like you know the future of warfare um everybody should you know read you know uh, like war by p w singer about five yeah. times he has a new book that <laughs> five times. yeah the
2: ghostlight i read ghostlight about five times i mean it's yeah, such a great book there you go there
1: you go he has a new like you know fiction that just came out, Burn In. So that's a great book to read. So H.R. McMaster has a new book coming out. It's called Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. I think it's, I mean, I I, I saw an early version of it, and I provide some feedback to H.R. McMaster. It's a oh, great, book. That's great It's gonna go down as one of the classics of our time. And then when it comes to the Kremlin, uh, the Red Web by uh, Irina Borogan. Uh, it came out about three years ago, but it's a phenomenal book in terms of how the Kremlin has weaponized uh, the internet and the, the cyber domain. So it's a must read for all like, you know, uh, sort of, you know, soft, you know, leaders and soldiers. And then I'd like to add just one more book for those who really care about special warfare and it's called uh, Twitter and Tear Guest: The Power of Fragility of Network Protests by uh, Zeynep uh, Tufekci, T-U-F-E-K-C-I. It came out also about three years ago, but you know, one thing that I want to like, you know, leave you with is this notion that great power competition will take place in the nexus between powerful states and non-state actors. So we need to approach like, you know, social movements both for defensive and offensive purposes. Guys at South know they always ask me, hey, the CCP is doing all kinds of projects along the Mekong River, and uh, they're weaponizing water, and also they're using these projects to bribe and co-opt local authorities. Uh, They may turn against our strategic interests. What do we about this? Well, there are a lot of you know social movements taking place against this project. And this you is amplify, where... amplify exactly. Those grievances. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, we can essentially like you know look at this, you know, movements and grievances as a way of imposing a lot of new costs on our peer adversaries, right? Lots of friction. Lots of friction for that. There them. you go. Yeah. And it slows yeah. down the adversarial machine. Pull down their
2: uh, Netflix productions there, their movies. (laughs)
1: Exactly. That is essentially a critical aspect of great power competition. So, you know, we have a way of looking at like, you know, irregular groups as something we need to control and squash. In great power competition, I think it should go the other way around. So that, those are some of the recommendations I have for you.
2: This has been incredible, uh, Duan. I really appreciate it. A lot, of, a lot of gold dust in this, this discussion that I'm sure everyone's going to value. So thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Um, really appreciate it.
0: With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.
3: If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like so the One CA podcast team gets important feedback and support. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the One CA podcast and the Unomia Journal. You can find more podcasts like this on ww.1capodcast.org. Again, that's www.onecapodcast.org. Dot one the Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners in allied countries. New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. Again, that's www.phenomiajournal.com. If you are not a member yet, please visit the Maine CA Association website and find a new range of membership options. Starting with cadets and midshipmen, membership is only $10 a year. We then have our basic annual membership at $40 per year and two years at $60, or finally, a three-year membership for only $80. Our most popular and best value option is a lifetime membership at a one-time price of $200. Be a member and don't miss out. 2020 is a big year with transformational changes underway. Lots of new opportunities for members. Don't miss out.
2: Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of One CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.